I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey everybody, welcome to Bitches on Comics. It's me, your beloved host, Sarah Century. And with me is, as always, my co-host... S.E. Fleenor. I literally almost said Sarah Century. I almost, I almost said, said S.E. <laughs> I am S.E. Fleenor. I swear. I am not Sarah. And hi, I'm, I'm here again, as always, to talk about comics and whatever else we feel like. I am very excited. We have a special guest with us here today, Olivia Quartero Briggs. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. I am so excited. I cannot wait to get into this. Uh, yeah, so Olivia is a screenwriter, a comic writer, a very cool and interesting person, and we are just like so, so pumped that you can make time for us today. Oh, well, honestly, it's it's my pleasure. Um, as those who know me well know, I will never pass up an opportunity to talk about myself. Um, so, so let's do it. <laughs> That made me laugh out loud. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and hey, it's an important piece of like being a writer and doing the creative thing is you have to, you know, say something about yourself because you're going to end up in some situation where someone's asking. So, yeah, if someone's like, tell us a little bit about yourself, Olivia, what what do you share? Uh, well, I'm going to try and be a little bit more interesting than I usually am, because actually 
part of the TV writer gig is that you're constantly having these general meetings with other people in the industry, executives, showrunners. It always starts that way. You know, they're like, well, tell us your life story. And how did you end up here? And so you end up telling this like prescribed version of your life over and over and over again and like laughing at all the same jokes that you tell. And it's it feels really, really forced. Um, so I'm going to switch things up a little bit for you guys because I feel like this is special and this is my comic book life and not my TV life. So what about me? I am a mother of two, which is extremely central to my existence, as I think it is for most parents, especially during the pandemic, considering the fact that I have been like locked in a two-bedroom apartment in Studio City with them uh, consistently for a <laughs> long time now. Um, and I love them dearly. I I think when I was younger, I never really uh, imagined having two girls. Like I thought like, oh, that's something that I will destroy. I need to have boys in my life because they will be, you know, tougher and stronger. I don't even know what. I won't mess them up as badly. Um, but <laughs> girls are such a tremendous gift. And in some ways, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, it's been such an interesting journey coming into my own and just realizing how very, very strong and resilient and amazing women are, even from a very young age. And seeing that in my girls, it reflects on them and they reflect on me. And it is a job that I have found so essential and important and it has infused everything I do. So from the moment I first became a mom, uh, when Quinn was born, she's going to be seven tomorrow, which is just bonkers. That was really the moment when doors started opening for me. And I think a lot of people think that having children is very prohibitive, especially for women. If you want to have a big career, well, you better wait until you're 40 to have kids because you won't be able to manage it, you know? But for me, it was so not true. I think that I had a real chip on my shoulder for a long time. And the minute she was born, that chip disappeared and my world opened up, my heart opened up. And when that happens, opportunities start to come your way. And more so than anything, it was when she was first born that I got my first uh, screenwriting gig. I ended up getting my first job in television as a writer's assistant because an old friend called me and was like, hey, do you want to move back to LA from New York with your little family and do this? And from there, it was just, you know, one thing after the other. Of course, there are always, you know, down periods, I guess, which is actually how I ended up getting into comics, a TV show that I was on got canceled. And uh, this was the arrangement. And it was after the second season. Um, e did not want to go forward with the show. They didn't really want to do scripted programming anymore. And I was totally thrown for a loop because I thought, well, gee, okay, I have, you know, two scripts under my belt now. Everyone's going to want to work with me. And it's way more competitive than that. And I started to freak out. And so I hit up my friend, Adam Glass, who you probably know from like the hundreds of comics he's written. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's been around the business for a long time. He's done a lot of books with Aftershock too. And that's how I was introduced to them. And he said, well, listen, I don't have anything in TV right now, but I have this idea, you know, for Mary Shelley Monster Hunter, but I can't do it alone. I need a female voice on this project because she's, her and her mother are like two of the OG feminists. Um, mm -hmm. Will you do this with me? And I had thought about comic book writing, but it's such an interesting leap to take some creatives to get to comic books and graphic novels because I always thought it was a really cool medium. But I was like, how does one even do that? Because I'm not a visual artist. I don't draw. I mean, I can, but you wouldn't like it. <laughs> so it was like, you know, 
oh my gosh, I didn't know that this was something that I could do just a writer and a creator. Um, so it was really, mm. really eye-opening. So much so that I'm totally addicted to it now. I've told my reps lately, I've been driving them nuts. I'm such an overactive client. I write them all the time and I'm like, <laughs> so do you have meetings for me with all of the comic book companies in the world yet? I'm just like <laughs> constantly, like I want more, more, more. Um, but that was how I got into comics. So it was really a gift that that show was canceled and that I had that time to kind of freak out and say like, okay, I have to find something else. Like TV is not going to be enough if sometimes there's a year between gigs, which can happen. It happens to mm-hmm. writers all the time. So in terms of my story, I think what's important to me to get across is that motherhood opened a ton of doors. Failure and disappointment opened even more. And I think when people tell their stories, I listen to tons of podcasts. I'm always listening to writer stories because especially when I was first starting out and wondering how am I going to get into this business because it's really illuminating, gives you tons of ideas and it's inspiring, but it's hard to hear story after story of like, and then I got this job and it was great. And it's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> ah, like I feel like crap right now and I want to hear some stories about, <laughs> you know, people who had some downturns. And especially when you're in the entertainment industry, it's not favorable to talk about things that could be perceived negatively. You know, I think everyone's like, just act really happy and like you love everyone because it's a small town, right? There's a great saying, you know, the toes you step on today might be connected to the ass you're kissing tomorrow. And I totally agree with that. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that there's a lot of failure in this business. It's just the nature of the business. You know, you're constantly putting content in the world. And if it succeeds, great. But that's a very, very small portion of the amount of stuff that goes out there. And that failure is okay. And it doesn't mean you should stop trying. I actually have the word right tattooed on my right index finger so that I see it all the time. And uh, it's just to remind myself that as long as I'm writing, everything will be okay. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) That's amazing origin story. I feel like I had maybe 700 questions (laughs) while you were talking. Oh my God, Um, go for it. One of them was just, I think that it's so interesting that you say that about having children, because that's certainly something, even in my own mind, I personally never wanted to have kids, but it was definitely something that was like, and you have to choose really. Like, you know, yeah, I think that we all get that whenever we're kids, maybe, where it's just kind of like, well, if you want to like do things with your life, I mean... And it's like, I mean, I think that that's like fair in some ways because it's like, yeah, of course, like my grandma had to work all the time because she had kids and like it definitely kind of had to put her dreams off and stuff. But yeah, it's nice to kind of hear a new perspective and to be like, it doesn't have to be that way. And then also what you were saying about how it kind of opened your heart. I think that that's 100% true because I also am thinking about a lot of the big disappointments that I've had as an artist or a writer. And it's just like a different zone. I feel like I'm like in a happier, healthier place myself. It is a completely different world, right? And it's just like, of course, you draw more contacts and like, you know, stuff like that whenever you're in a good place, you know? Sure. Uh, Yes, absolutely. In fact, it was like five months after I had my daughter, I was a finalist at the Austin Film Festival. 
And I, of course, planned on going. It's a, for any people who don't know, the Austin Film Festival. It's called a film festival, but it's really just like the most amazing writers conference. And even if you are, you know, a semifinalist, a quarterfinalist, whatever, if you get to that point, go because you will meet so many people. The networking opportunities are just brilliant. And the whole thing is just designed around advancing writers. I remember going there and like <laughs> people who know me are kind of going to laugh at this because you know, I'm someone who's very outspoken. If something's bothering me, like I don't hesitate to speak out about it. But I told myself on this particular trip, I'm going to be the nicest person there. <laughs> Which is like, I'm also a native New Yorker. So like being endlessly <laughs> kind and like gracious and like acknowledging the presence of people who are standing next to you is not something that is like <laughs> native to us, you know? Um, it's not in our blood, so to say. But I was really focused on like, I just want to be open and I want to be kind and I just want to, you know, see what comes my way. And of course, you know, very much on the heels of like having a child. Um, and it was also my first time away from my baby, which was which was tough. So I go to this conference and uh, it was actually where I ended up meeting my best friend, who is still my best friend now. She's also a television writer. She was a finalist in the half-hour comedy division. I was a finalist in the one-hour pilot division. And we're currently pitching a show together right now. What? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, oh, it's so much fun. I probably shouldn't talk about it too much, considering we want someone to buy it. And right. uh, there's <laughs> there's some big, huge twists and turns, but... It's a, it's a really exciting project for me because it's the first really strongly um, Latina-driven project that I have conceived of, which is another kind of important and interesting part of my identity that I've only recently claimed. And in Silver City, Rue is also Latina, although her background, and we can talk about this whenever we get there, but, um, you know, she never knew who her birth parents were. And her ethnicity is not, it's not as important as who she is on the inside. It sounds like super cliche. <laughs> <laughs> like her soul is more important than the exterior. But I also thought it was super important to have representation because I've always, my father is basically white. I think that there's some Native American on his side, but the Briggs family in upstate New York has been around for a really long time. And then my mother is actually first-generation American, and uh, her mother was from the Dominican Republic, and her father was from Spain. And so I'm like, you know, kind of, I guess to some people, an intriguing shade of tan. But, you know, growing up, it's I was born in uh, 1983. Ooh, dating myself. Okay, I'm going to get over that right now. I was born um, that year too, though. <laughs> yeah. 1983, year of the boar. What's up? Yeah, that means we're, we're studious and smart, and I'm going to take that. And also, my, my song, it's the Flashdance song, which is just so badass. That was the number mm. one song uh, the day that I was born. So nice. what a feeling. Take your passion. Make it happen. If you just substitute writing for dance in that song, um, then it makes it much more boring. But that's me. Um, so, But this was a time when, you know, and my mother was an actress in New York City at the time. And, you know, this was when everyone was changing their ethnic sounding names to sound as Anglo as possible, their stage names. And growing up, you know, people started asking me, well, actually, people would always come up to me and say what a lovely tan I had, which was ridiculous. I never went anywhere 
It's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) It's January. It's in New York City. And I have a full coat on. And so finally, like I inquired with my mom, I'm like, well, you know, what is our background? Because that was everyone's favorite question back in the day. What's your ethnic background? What's your ethnic background? And so she told me. And so, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting. I didn't really have any understanding of what Dominican was. I knew Spain was a country. I knew that they had sponsored Christopher Columbus's voyage to the New World. But I didn't really know what those two things meant. But some of my friends did. And I remember telling them, Like, oh, yeah, I'm Dominican. And they started making fun of me. And it was this whole thing like, oh, Olivia thinks she's black, which was not the case. And so I got to this point where I was like, oh, okay, talking about my ethnicity is getting me made fun of. So I'm not going to do that anymore. I have led a fine existence up until this point, just like playing into whatever vague whiteness this is. And keep in mind, this is New York City, too. So like everyone looks different. There's not like a huge emphasis on either being white or being not. So it was just easy enough not to talk about it. And so that's what I did for a really long time until the past few years And kind of stepping up to my own plate and acknowledging the fact that I'm not just a white person, that I am a Latina, even if my dad is white, and that's that's the Briggs in me, and I'm proud of that too. So kind of owning my um, identity as a Hispanic person has been, it's really been an adventure. It's still very new to me. Oh my God, SE! We have so many projects. It is wild. Do you ever just wake up in the morning and think about all the projects? I do. I frequently, I also wake up at four in the morning and think about all the projects. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't require a full night of sleep to think about the projects, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> all day, every day, we think about the projects. Now, one of our projects is that last year we started a publishing house right which is i mean kind of a big deal and it's called queerspec.com we have a host of projects that we're working on one of them happens to be decoded pride now decoded pride we did an anthology of last year what it is is every june we have one story per day by a queer author And it goes for the full 30 days of June, and it is very cool. At the end, you get a PDF that collects all of the stories. You also get ebook formats. So if you want to read it on your Kindle or you want to read it on another tablet, you you get those formats as well. And it is real cool. I have read it multiple times because, I mean, well, we picked the story, so it was real fun. But also, we have another editor, Monica Estrella Negra, who you know from many episodes. So that's pretty sweet, too. It's super rad. So you get 30 stories, like Sarah said, from queer creators, 30 different queer creators from all around the world. We are so excited to be publishing so many diverse voices. At full price, it's less than 50 cents a story or a comic. And we just couldn't be more excited to be doing this work. We pay everyone who contributes. We pay our comic creators we pay our writers and we love it we love what we're doing help us continue to do this by coming and buying a pre-order subscription to decoded pride go to decodedpride.com buy a subscription
Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. So Olivia, you were saying that things have shifted now that you've stepped into your Latinx identity more. And I was wondering if you could just tell us what that looks like and, and how that's felt. It's still really interesting. It's still quite a journey. You know, it began with uh, taking my mother's name. Uh, my mother is my biggest supporter in my career. She is literally always there for me. In fact, this morning I had just drop my daughter off at school. And I just, I, I've been dealing with this weird issue um, in my uh, TV writing career. And I just needed a sounding board. And so I called her right in the middle of her work day. And she dropped everything to talk me through it and give me amazing advice like she does all the time. And I feel like my mother is as much a part of me as my father. Why shouldn't I have her name? And so I tacked it on to mine. And, uh, you know, it was a very emotional thing for both of us. But it was really interesting because in doing so, and I'm not going to call anybody out, but I started to realize that when I would go into meetings, 
you know, and they would hear like, oh, she's a Latina from New York. Like they were expecting something completely different. You know, I grew up in uh, Midtown Manhattan for the most part. And my father taught at the private school that I went to. So I was a faculty brat. But nonetheless, you know, I don't have a New York accent because of it. So I think when people hear that I'm this like New York Latina, like they're, you know, expecting someone with a little bit more grit, perhaps. And I step into those meetings and it always takes them a minute to re-register. And um, I even had one executive once ask me if I could lean more into my Dominicanness, And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? It's so weird. And my answer was no. I I don't have that. My mother's estranged from her family and I didn't grow up with them. I don't know that world. I only know my world. And so what's really interesting about stepping into this identity is also stepping into the fact that people are going to have certain expectations attached to whatever they think that identity is and not being afraid to say just because I don't, and I don't get me wrong, I love a good pair of hoops, but like just because I don't wear hoops on a regular basis and always have my hair in a tight bun, which I also love, but I don't do it all the time. And I don't always chew gum and talk with a New York accent. That doesn't make me any less of a legitimate Latina than those beautiful Latinas who do. So that's been really interesting for me. Um, And, you know, (laughs) I will also tell you that uh, since taking my mother's name, I would go into meetings with executives that I had met before and they didn't recognize me. And it was super awkward because it's like, oh, like, you know, you want to bring up something you've talked about before and they're just like, mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, wow, you're pretending that you know what I'm talking about and you so don't. Because they have redressed me as a Latina. They put me in a different box. And I get mm. it because right now, you know, in the industry, in any industry, people are very interested in BIPOC stories. They are. So they they cast me in that role and that's what they're seeing and that's what they're looking for. What does she have to offer in this area? Whereas when they met me before, they put me in the in the white woman box. You know, what does this white woman have for us? <laughs> So it's it's just it is super interesting. And I really I I have nothing negative to say about it. Um, I think that we're in a really interesting climate right now uh, where everything is being reassessed and renegotiated in our minds. Uh, the best of us anyway, are all taking stock of what it means to live in this new era of identity and learning that. And I've actually, I listened to some of your other podcasts and I love what you guys had to say about this and how like, you're never going to have the right word because it's always changing and evolving and just accepting that it's not about right or wrong. It's just about people and beautiful individual people and respecting beautiful people's individuality. And um, that's something that I think is very exciting. And I'm not going to say that I'm not going to hit stumbling blocks along the way in this journey and this path. I, I have, and I will continue to. But I am excited for the overall outcome of the situation that we're in right now. And uh, I think it's going to be a good thing. I do. Kind of overall, without getting too specific about anything that's, that's happening right now. So that's been my general, uh, general feeling and adventure on the issue. And I really do... Um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of stories recently, people coming out of the woodwork and telling me they had very similar experiences of just kind of squashing or stepping away from their ethnic identity because they didn't feel like they belonged in it. And then they find they kind of don't belong anywhere. 
And I want to tell you that you do belong. And if you can't find anyone that you belong with, you can hang out with me and you can read my comics where I always try and represent vaguely ethnic people. (laughs) Uh, Just so, because when I was younger, I never saw myself anywhere. I never saw myself. You know, American Girl dolls, do you guys have those? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my daughter just got into them in like a major, major way. And uh, I mean, it's beautiful what they've done. And they have tried to incorporate every different kind of worldly ethnicity that you can think of. But they're all so specific. And like the Latina, do you remember Josefina? She's like 100% Mexican. I never had the dolls. I just read the books. So I have like a weird relationship to American Girl. So I, I think I know the name from one of the books, but I do not remember the character or the uh, doll. Okay. Well, I mean, this is also one that um, has been discontinued, but she's gorgeous and she's beautiful, but they're like so steeped in their home cultural ethnicity that it's hard to access that. I can't say I belong with that. And I think that that's something that's very American. And so, you know, to kind of accept your Americanness and to see Americans of all different shades represented is something that's important to me. And that was really important in my representation of Rue. And the fact that the story is not about what her ethnic background is, even she doesn't know. Uh, She has no idea who her parents were. It's about the worth of her soul. So that, to me, was something that was really important to kind of explore and swim around in and see where it took me. So, Something that stood out to me about what you said, and I think is absolutely the way Sarah and I approach, Sarah, tell me if I'm wrong, storytelling is we need stories of all kinds. So we need stories where someone's Latinx identity, where someone's queer identity, where someone's identity of being a woman or a mother or what have you is important and needs to be the center of the story. And we need stories where people are all those things and they just have a different story going on. You know, how often do we hear people say... Exactly, yes. Yeah, how much would I like to just have a story where a superhero is Latinx, but they don't have to perform their Latinxness for other people? You know, what would it look like if we had that? You know, the same goes for trans and queer and black and Asian and and every other, you know, identity disabled. And, And I think that that is... It's exciting to know that that's part of what you're trying to grapple with in your work. I think a lot of people don't feel enough, don't feel queer enough, don't feel trans enough. I'm white, yes. so I can't speak to black, indigenous, people of color's experiences. But I think it. I've heard people talk about for themselves, like, oh, I don't feel black enough. I don't feel whatever enough because of X, Y, Z thing. And I think when we can say, oh, you are. <laughs> yeah. Point blank. Like, you are. Done. End of sentence. <laughs> like, that is always a good thing. And, and I, 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 you know, Silver City is something really special. So if you guys are ready, I'm ready to go there. Yeah. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. You know, I really, I love all kinds of weird macabre because they're like about death and about end of life. Like we, we really loved Euthanauts from Teeny Howard. And then I think Silver City is right there with it in a very cool comic. Oh, well, thank you. I didn't even immediately connect this afterlife theme in our reading (laughs) that has taken focus for us. But yeah, reading Silver City is like, oh, it's so interesting that we can have a afterlife story that's completely different than like the last one that we just read, you know, like not Mm -hmm. even a couple weeks ago or something like that. And they're both like absolutely brilliant. Exactly. Thank you for clarifying that, Sarah. Because yeah, there's not a ton in common, except that they're both about exploring like what, what happens beyond this veil. 
Rue is really interesting. Junie is like a really fascinating character. I've read a little bit about how you came up with the idea, where it came from, but I'd love it if you told our listeners, like, where did this come from? Because it started as a novel. Is that correct? It actually started as a dream, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So um, I had a lot of vivid dreams in my 20s. I still do from time to time, but not like I did then. And I don't think it was just because I drank a lot more and smoked cigarettes back then. Maybe I also just got a lot more sleep. That's definitely the case. But um, I think I was, gosh, maybe like 24, 23, 24. And I was uh, living with my best friend from college. And he and I were always making things together. We wanted to start our own production company and take Hollywood by storm. Oh, we used to stay up all night just talking ideas. And we had like these gigantic rolls of like photography paper. And I don't know why we did this. This is super weird now that I think of it. We would like, we would spread it out on the floor and just write ideas all over this thing. We must have been on something because thinking about that now, that's like a really strange way to... (laughs) (laughs) Like outline your ideas. But um, we had a wonderful time. So I always had someone to bounce ideas off of. So I had this really wild dream one night where I woke up on the floor in this place I had never been to before. There was like fog everywhere and people all around me that I didn't recognize. And this person was like shining a flashlight in my eyes and helped me up off the floor. And I was like, what's going on? And they said, you've passed on. And immediately, I believed that I knew they were right. I just knew it. And I was like, all right. I had no idea how I had gotten there. I had no idea how I had died. But this place was like crazy. There were people everywhere. And they were crying and talking. And it was like completely cacophonous. And I went out into this hallway. I was supposed to check in somewhere. And then they said, okay, now you have to go find a room for the night. And I remember going from room to room. And there was just someone in every room. And finally, someone said to me, okay, well, we're going to take you to another area of this building because everything is filled up here. So clearly I had died in some sort of mass casualty event, right? So they lead me out onto this footbridge and it was high, high up above the city. I had no idea how high I was. And I'm looking out on this city that I have never seen before. And it's sprawling and gray. And there's like, just just this like fog all over the place. And it was like these weird boxes stacked on top of one another, all in these like different architectural styles. And then... In my dream, the statue of the Silver Knight was literally, it was like a coat of arms, like crudely stuck on a pole, (laughs) like hovering above the city. But I will say Luca Murley did something much more interesting. (laughs) I'm glad for that because mine was like really kind of scary. So I was looking out over the city and then I don't remember the exact course of events, but it became very clear. I was living with people I had never met before because I had to get an apartment. I had to pay rent, which meant I had to get a job. And I remember feeling like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I'm dead. I've lost everything. And now I have to get a job uh, and (laughs) pay my rent. uh, Because yeah, at the time, you know, when you're in your early 20s, that's like the bane of your existence, right? Just paying your rent. Um, So I remember being super annoyed about that. And then I had to volunteer again. This is like crazy that this dream is that long. I swear I'm not making this up. But I went back to the place where I had landed because you had to do like mandatory volunteer work. Another strike against this shitty silver city that I ended up in. (laughs) And so I was supposed to be like helping new arrivals, you know, and there was a baby in the room and I'm holding this baby. And this person comes up to me and is like, we usually just get rid of those. And I was like, what are you talking about? 
they're like, well, they don't grow and they don't change. So they're just going to be babies forever. And I was like, you are not getting rid of this baby. I'm taking this baby. I'm going to take care of it. And then I don't know if there's a time jump in my dream or whatever it was, but I started, I was feeling around in the baby's mouth and I realized she was growing teeth. And that was the moment where I was like, oh my God, she's alive. Somehow she slipped down here. She's not supposed to be here. And that's when I woke up. So, wow. Yeah. What a dream. (laughs) There's pacing, there's stakes, there's an arc. Like, wow. Damn. I know. It's like, how'd you come up with this idea? My dreams are like, here's some cheese and a a bear and here's a wolf and you know what your teachers are mad at you you're not in school those are my dreams i so i don't know at all and you're naked in the classroom (laughs) listen i have those dreams too all the time this okay good you're still human yes no this dream was epic i've had a few dreams like that but this is the first one that i tried to turn into something because when i woke up i was like Brian, my fantastic roommate at the time, who was also my like pretend business partner, we fancied ourselves big movie makers and we were not. Um, But regardless, I had someone there to immediately bounce these ideas off of. So the idea started brewing and I knew it was something special, but I had no idea how to execute it. I thought a million times, how do I write this as a feature? It's too big for a feature. How would I write it as a television pilot? How to get people into this world and introduce it in, you know, like a 55-page script? I was like, I don't know how to do this. So I thought, okay, let me write it as a novel. So I started writing it as a novel. And then I ended up going to grad school. I went to NYU Tisch in Singapore for my um, MFA in dramatic writing. And I brought the book with me. But something, I don't know, something still wasn't quite right about it. But then, of course, in graduate school, you don't have time to think about anything, especially in these types of, you know, two-year programs where it's just like you have to write your ass off every second or you're going to fall behind kind of thing. And so I got out of that program and I had written a million things since this attempt at Silver City. And then I got to L.A. The school was like sponsoring this event in Los Angeles. And granted, I lived in L.A. before, but at the time after graduating, I'd gone back to New York City, my hometown. So my husband and I fly out to L.A. for this event, and one of the people there is Glenn Mazzara, who at the time had just come off of The Walking Dead. He ran that show for a couple of years, and he had spoken at my graduation, and uh, I was really sneaky at the time. And I had started a school publication because there was a lot going on at Tish Asia at the time. The school was like literally falling apart. They had fired the president, and it was mayhem, and I was like, people need to know what's going on here. So rather than get on my soapbox, I was like, I'm just going to start this publication. But what I was able to use that publication for was whenever we would have a guest speaker, I would cover the event or I would have someone cover the event, but always send the article to the person who had presented so that they could, you know, look it over before we published it to the world. So not only were you covering the event and getting all the information, but you were also getting the contact information of this, you know, professional in the entertainment industry at the same time. So I kind of used the inroads that I had created. I got Glenn Mazzara's email address and I said, will you be my mentor? Which was one of those moments in my career where I just overcame my nerves and I was like, I want this, give it to me, (laughs) which is like really hard to do still. Oh, it makes my stomach hurt so much every time I do it. But he immediately wrote back and said, yes. So during this trip to Los Angeles, I met with him and he was the one that told me that you have to have an interesting origin story to go into meetings with, which is not the one that I told you guys, because that one's like so 
overpracticed um, and overrehearsed, <laughs> but I do have one of those and like, you know, how to make it visual and engaging and like throw in funny anecdotes and like laugh at your own jokes, uh, which I do. Oh, it's so embarrassing. But anyway, and then, you know, he, we were talking about ideas and I pitched him Silver City. And at the time it was like still really nebulous. And I kind of expected him to be like, well, like that's okay, but whatever. But he was like, okay, so you have your purgatory story and what else? And I was like, it's my purgatory story. I love that. And it was like totally legitimate to him, my purgatory story. And so that was, you know, coming from a man like Len Mazzara, like you hold on to those things. Um, he also told me that a play that I had written was one of the best plays he had ever read by an emerging writer, which is amazing. And then he read this other sample of mine and asked me if English was my first language. Um, <laughs> so... Oh, highs and lows. Highs and lows. (laughs) Very much so. I feel like like that's being a writer. You can like win a MacArthur Genius Grant on the same day that someone's like, should you even be writing? Oh, my God. And the emotional experience of being a writer is the same thing. But like if you knew Glenn Mazzara, like you would think that that was kind of charming because that's who he is. And he just says completely what's on his mind. He's a New Yorker also. So that's kind of what I'm used to. I'm not used to handholding and, and a lot of compliments. I'm like, why are you tricking me right now? Like, I am, <laughs> I'm very suspicious of people. Like, I'm used to like, how the fuck are you? You know, like, that's that's how we talk to one another. And like, everything's kind of a backhanded compliment. So yeah, I mean, that was the moment like talking to Glenn that I was like, okay, I'm on to something here. Let me hold on to this. And then after doing Mary Shelley Monster Hunter, I was like, this is it. This is where the story belongs. This is what can make it visual and jump off the page and engage people right away without me having to explain the entire world. Because it's Silver City. I mean, I've just done the first five books, but really, I mean, someone asked me like, how long could you see this running? I was like, oh my God. I mean, this journey is so big. And I, I, maybe I shot myself in the foot, but nine is one of those kind of magical numbers. And so I wanted there to be nine levels of existence, right? So there's eight levels of the afterlife and only one level of life as we know it, right? There's a journey that's going to take place, but that goes through all of them. So, I mean, it's like, how much story do you want? Because I've got it for you. And it's just like... (laughs) Well, right in the first five issues, we only go through level one, correct? Yeah, and you don't even get past it. Yeah. If I have it it my way and I get to do another five, we jump to a new level for a little bit and then we have to go back to Silver City because there's a lot that needs to be resolved there. But yeah, in the first five books, we're just in Silver City, but it's important because Silver City, it's the name of the series. It's where my dream was. It's where her story begins. And it establishes that this is not your ordinary depiction of the afterlife. This is not Mm. some sunny place where you get to look down on your loved ones. This isn't even a place where you necessarily get anything that you didn't have. In fact, it seems like you have less. And that's because of the overall conceit, which, you know, have you guys read the first book or the first two books? We've just read the first. The first book. Okay. So, I mean, that at least uh, gets you through the idea that we're all prisoners. We just don't know it. Right. So, you know, the the lives, the 
the idea behind the book is that, you know, life as we know it with this fear of death, the fact that like, you know, death is kind of this wall and past that we, we cannot see past death. We have no idea what's on the other side of this quote unquote passing on, right? That that's never how we were meant to live. It's an artificial construct. We weren't meant mm-hmm. to live in fear of death. We were meant to be able to see our loved ones on the other side. We were meant to be able to traverse the worlds of the afterlife on quests for knowledge or to see old ones, any questions that we had and and come back to our lives if we wanted. You can hang out there for a while. There's no, there were no kind of rules. And in that way, we were truly free. Because if you think about it, I mean, what is what's more palpable than fear of death? I mean, everything that we do in our lives in some way, shape or form. I mean, if you were really cynical, you could trace back to fear of death, right? We need to eat. We need to feed ourselves, survival, shelter. All of these things are to keep ourselves alive. And a lot of the kind of, you know, powerful structures, societal and cultural that have been erected, play on our fear of death. I mean... Let's not talk about the past administration, but some of these controversial leaders that we have had as of late, and not just in the U.S., they play on people's fears, fear of survival, fear that their way of life is going to end. And uh, it's not possible unless we don't know what's on the other side, because if we did, that's just too empowering. We wouldn't put up with shit. So the idea behind Silver City is that we are all in our lives prisoners we just don't know it. And every level of the afterlife, it's, been, it's the same thing. These boundaries have been erected that prevent us from seeing what is next so that in every realm we are captives. We are fearful. And we were not meant to be afraid. So that is what Silver City asks you to buy into. What is a world without fear? And is it worth risking everything to get there? I do think that concept is part of what makes Silver City so special. The idea that there are these, there aren't borders or even concrete boundaries between life and death. It's all part of one continuum and that you're meant to swirl back and forth. And I think that that represents a lot of different faiths' beliefs. And I I think it'd be cool to hear a little bit about your research because I know, or at least what I've read from, I believe it was your interview with Wawak, is that you don't have a faith background of your own, but you were really intrigued by reading about a lot of different religions. Is that is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've read a fair amount about other religions, but uh, the way that I was raised, my parents didn't subscribe to any one particular religion, but I will say that my mother read a lot of Shirley MacLaine, and she believed my my mother is a lot more uh, adventurous in her beliefs than she even gives herself credit for. Um, she believes very much in reincarnation. She believes that souls travel together lifetime after lifetime. And part of why she believed that was because of me. I guess when I was two years old, I said something very strange. She was lamenting that we didn't do something on my second birthday. It was like, but it was like a specifically second birthday thing. It wasn't something you could do on a third birthday or a fourth birthday. It was something <laughs> you could only do on a second birthday. I don't know what this was. And I said, oh, don't worry. We'll do it next time. And she goes, well, you know, it won't really work for a third birthday. I said, no, my next second birthday. And she said, when I, I looked at her and I knew exactly what I meant and she knew exactly what I meant and all the hairs in the back of her neck stood up. And of course, I don't remember this moment, but she remembers it quite vividly. So I was raised in such a way where 
anything was possible. You know, my mother also, we love to watch documentaries on aliens together. She's incredibly open-minded. And I love that about her. It's like, there's so much about the world and the universe that we don't know. Why say no to these possibilities? Why do it? You know, it's, it's, it's so wonderful to be in a place where you can open your mind up to anything. And she was incredibly open that way. So while... At the time, it seemed like a concept to me and not necessarily a faith that really left me open. I didn't have an allegiance to any religion, so I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong by going with friends to temple or going with a friend to a Baptist church or going with my godmother to the ashram. These were all fantastic spiritual experiences that I got to have with total freedom because I wasn't tied by anything. And tell you the truth, I loved it all. I really did. It was such an experience. So that is uh, kind of where my spiritual curiosity has come from. Then recently, I have done a lot more research because I'm curious about everything and I, I read like crazy. I find paganism really interesting. And so that's been what I've been researching lately. And I spent a long time uh, reading about Hinduism and Buddhism before that. So yes, you'll definitely see other cultures' beliefs kind of lifted, moved around. But I would say that my attempt in Silver City was not to take anything from any specific religion, but to really create something that was different and resonated with me. And so if you see pieces of other spiritualities in there, of course, that's going to happen. But it's not a religion-based comic, (laughs) is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me there's a lot of theology and a lot of Thanatology, thinking about what does it mean to be dead? What does it mean to be alive? What does this all mean? But it didn't necessarily feel like any, you know, particular faith backgrounds were being represented. However, the ideas that humans have grappled with through faith, through philosophy, through meaning making are all there. And I think just knowing a little bit about your process, and I could see some of that coming through the pages. I have a master in theological studies. I love to hey, think hey. about death. You, know, you got to bring it up when you can. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> love to think about these like weird. I just went because I was a nerd, right? Like I was like, I want to read more books. Let's do this. And spent so much time thinking about death unexpectedly. And I and I think that that is. It's such a human conundrum, and and I really enjoyed seeing how you as an artist grappled with it through Silver City. Like, what does it mean to be dead? What does it mean to be dead when you've had a really terrible life like Rue has, and you've had really shitty childhood situations? I wouldn't even—I was going to say shitty parenting, and I was like, there's not even any parenting. It's just, like, shitty adults being terrible to you. And then to see how Rue grapples with that as she looks at Junie, you know, that was— I think very powerful. So I just wanted to comment on that. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, the relationship with Junie is really, it's, you know, Rue is someone who grew up the ultimate underdog. And uh, for that reason, she really has a soft spot for other underdogs. And so from the moment that she sees Junie being victimized or, you know, taken advantage of, she makes it her mission to get her back where she belongs. And what you just brought up, it's funny, I hadn't even thought about it. And this always happens when people read your work and and reflect it back at you and you see something in your own work that you never saw before. But it's true, like Junie really does have a loving family to go back to, which is something that Rue never had. 
And, you know, if I had 10 or 20 books or, you know, if this ever became a television show, God willing, that would be something that would be really interesting to dive into more is that dynamic. That's that's very cool that you just brought that up. I feel like I should get my notebook out and start jotting down. <laughs> now well, we promise to keep the recording and not throw it away. So you can <laughs> there you go. listen back. <laughs> I just liked that you brought up Shirley MacLaine because I was thinking that I read that (laughs) book whenever I was really young. And now I'm just like, oh, wow, that kind of shows through in the comics. So I think that it's like the opposite for me where, yeah, basically you said that and I'm like, wait, now I got to read this comic again and think about Shirley MacLaine the whole time because like (laughs) my grandma was a big fan of hers and I love all that reincarnation stuff that she was on about and it's really fun. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, it totally reminds me of some of this. Okay. (laughs) Well, maybe I should put her in there somewhere. Shirley oh, you McClain have to can, can make an appearance. <laughs> yeah, if Janis Joplin can, then certainly Shirley exactly. MacLaine. I mean, she's got it all figured out, right? She's probably been through <laughs> yeah. there. She's gonna. She'll be a guide. She'll be. She'll be the shaman. <laughs> I am losing my mind right now. Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> yes, I will freak out. Um, but <laughs> so I also wanted to talk about the pup. I remember there was a oh, little yeah. bit of conversation. I read a little bit of an interview where you were talking about the influence of the dog and how that was based on your first dog, right? Yes, my my first dog that was mine, all mine. Um, his name was Snacks. Aww. Not be, well. I I adopted him from a Los Angeles County animal shelter, and it was so interesting because the moment I walked in, I saw him, and I said, "That's my dog." And you know, you take them into the little play area, and it was like Velcro. He was just attached to me. And the woman who was showing him to me, she said, well, you know, he's got a lot of fans. And I knew someone was going to be coming back for him. And I was like, oh, God. I was like, okay, I'm going to take him right now. (laughs) So I scooped him up, brought him home. And then lo and behold, he had like the worst submissive peeing problem I have ever seen in an animal. If you looked at him the wrong way, he would just pee everywhere. And, you know, I was like, I think I was 24, 25 at the time. And I was not a patient person. I was extremely headstrong, extremely driven. And I had never had a dog before. And I didn't know how to deal with this. And it was a massive transformation that I went through having to be a dog mom. Because this dog, he wasn't just a dog. He really wasn't. And this sounds like everybody says that. But when Snacks passed away, everyone in my world who had ever met this dog, and there was a lot of people because I brought him everywhere with me. Um, I brought him upstate. I would go to upstate New York for the summers. He was there with me. He lived with my father's girlfriend for a couple of years when I was in Singapore and like met all of her friends and her people. Like everyone was devastated because this dog was an old soul. And we all agreed, like, there's no way in his next life that he's going to be a dog again. Like, he got to reach people status. He earned it. He was like, he was such a good boy. So he raised me. Um, in a lot of ways. He taught me compassion. He taught me patience. Because uh, if, I, if I didn't have it, he would have ruined all of my bed sheets, my couch, everything. <laughs> and he was just such a sweet dog. He was so patient and loving with me. Um, he had been through something in the first six months of his life. I feel pretty certain that he was abused because he had a very nervous disposition. But he was so special. And when my husband and I came back from Singapore, we ended up in the situation where We could live at my dad's place for free if we were to give up snacks. 
And my husband was like, no way. We are going to put ourselves into a situation where we're renting an apartment that we cannot afford and have a shoestring budget and eat ramen for the next few years because we are keeping this dog. I mean, <laughs> it's like, yep. mm-hmm. so, yeah, mm-hmm. he, he was that for us. And then when I was um, five months pregnant with my second daughter, he started going downhill really rapidly. And I, we think he was about 10 at the time. To be honest with you, I never expected him to live very long because he was always of this kind of uh, nervous disposition. I didn't think that he was very uh, strong physically. And he hid his symptoms for a really long time. And by the time I had taken him to the vet, they were like, you know, his lymph nodes are completely um, swollen all over his body. They said, you know, it's definitely lymphoma. And so I had a few days with him, uh, tried, you know, putting him on steroids. And it's just like a very sad story. So I'll just cut to, I had to put him down uh, when I was mm. five months pregnant. And I Ugh. held him the entire time. And uh, it was, it was really difficult. But I will tell you something. After having that experience and getting through it, I worried so much about that dog dying until he did. And I thought to myself, oh my God, why did I bother thinking about that? Even for a second, when you, when you fear the death of a creature, it keeps you from them emotionally. You don't even realize it, but you're shielding yourself from them, from, from loving them fully because you're afraid of how terrible you're going to feel when they're not here anymore. And what a waste of time because he was such a beautiful creature. I never should have thought for a second about it. And I should have just enjoyed every moment with him. And he taught me that. And I have two fantastic pups now. And I never think about it. I never think about it. They're, they're mine for as long as they're going to be here with me. And I look both of them in the eye and I, I say to them and I say to myself, when you need to go, I will do the exact same kindness for you and I will hold you till the end. And and that's that. So snacks. Well, was fuck a- Olivia. Are you trying to make me fucking cry? Oh, always. Losing my shit over here. Yeah. Oh, same. Dog love, man. Dog love. It's a powerful thing. And he taught that to me. And it was actually, it was right after he died that I think I started writing Silver City. That was like, you know, everything had been signed with Aftershock and it was time for me to start writing. And I thought, I'm not ready to let him go. He deserves a life and I'm writing about the afterlife. So why shouldn't he be there? Um, so. So this was my chance to see him again and to give him a story. And he doesn't have a huge story in the first five books, but I will say there is a reason why he is the only animal you will meet in Silver City. And eventually Rue's going to look around and be like, wait a minute, why are you the only dog that's here? Uh, but I don't, did you guys see um, the amazing incentive covers for Silver City? Yes. Did you uh. see that? painting of Rue like cradling snacks in her lap yes. like the way and she just like the way she has her hand just like hovering over his head like she loves him more than anything I'm like I, I need to frame that and put that on my wall because that was us yes. that was us yes I need to frame that and put that on my wall <laughs> oh, I know it's that's beautiful, beautiful. work Thank by you all so the much. artists Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, he was he was my baby. And the reason why he was named Snacks is because I wanted to name him Sal Paradise because, oh my God, I hate myself right now. But like, <laughs> I'm such like a beat poet nerd. And it was like such a weird elitist thing for me to try and name this dog. And he just like never responded to Sal Paradise. <laughs> and... <laughs> 
sorry. (laughs) So silly. And then I was like, I don't know. This dog's not listening to me. I brought him to a party once. There was like big drunk guy that was sitting at this table, just like commanding the whole room. And he was like, that's because you're just a little snack. Come here, snacks. And snacks jumped in his lap and started (gasps) licking his face. And I was like, okay, I guess you just named my dog. It was all he ever answered to. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sarah and I are big pet people. Sarah has a couple cats and a bunny and they're all rescues. And then I have, uh, I had two dogs. Mine passed away about a year and a half ago, my my older boy. And then now I just have a a little weirdo, but both rescues as well. So we, that story cut me deep, cut me deep. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll let you patch that up. No, it was good. Let it bleed. Let it bleed. <laughs> While you're telling this story, my cat Shaka, who never jumps up in my lap, jumped up in my lap to like give me cute little blinky eyes. And I'm just like, okay. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Here she is. See, they Here know stuff, is. man. They know stuff. And they feel things that there's no way they could. It's They're receptive to things that people just aren't. And uh, yeah, they're fabulous. I I never got to have dogs when I was growing up because I grew up in New York City and the building that I lived in didn't allow them. And now, like, I look at my dogs all the time and I'm like, what would I do without you? And then my husband's like glaring at me in the corner because like he he's the one who does everything for them. Like he walks them, he feeds them, he takes them to the vet. <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, it's great for you. So you don't have to do anything um, except love them and pet them and kiss them and let them get away with everything. So, yes, I have a, I have a prime deal when it comes to my puppies. <laughs> and they're both girls, by the way. So talk about bitches. And every time they fight, I'm like, bitch fight. <laughs> and my, my daughters are like, yeah, and jump in there. It's really fun. <laughs> We're a house totally full of women. My poor husband, like the cat's a girl, the dogs are girls. We have two daughters. And sometimes I just like see him like standing in the middle of the mayhem. Like, what have I done? <laughs> I just read Ali Wong's book and she has a husband who's in that situation <laughs> as well. And- <laughs> It was a delightful read, I'll say that. Well, I don't know what next question to ask since we just like cried over the last oh, one. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, no, no, in a great way. <laughs> yeah, be like, careful what you ask. If, me, there, if there isn't crying on the podcast, we can't even be sure there was an episode. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Did it even happen? I did actually, though, want to ask about, because obviously Mary Shelley, Monster Hunter, that was your first comic that you worked on, right? Yeah. So I am just curious, what is your relationship with Mary Shelley's writing? Because I loved that series. (laughs) And like, while I was reading it, I was like, I wonder if Mary Shelley would like this. And then I was like, I think that Mary Shelley would have liked this. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, would she have liked it? I I think she would like it if she could see it through a modern day lens, because I think Mm -hmm. that some of it, some of it might kind of upset her, her sensibilities a little bit, because I think, you know, her mother was this just incredible, ferocious game changer of a woman. And uh, she was incredibly outspoken in her feminist viewpoint, so much so that she was really scandalized. And even, oh, it's so heartbreaking because the man that she married uh, was a feminist also, William Godwin. And um, he really believed in her and he loved her very dearly. And after she died, he kind of published 
this tell-all about her life, and he meant it to be in celebration of her. But what he did was he talked about, you know, that she was kind of into this free love thing and that she had uh, other lovers. She had had a child out of wedlock uh, with an American man. That was Fanny Imlay, uh, Mary Shelley's older sister. And in doing so, he completely destroyed her reputation. I mean, the, somehow she was resurrected, I think, in the 1970s. Someone stumbled upon her writing and revitalized her entire reputation. But she was almost lost to history because she was so scandalized. And so Mary Shelley entered the world as this child of scandal. So in some ways, I think that was kind of liberating for her. You know, because she couldn't really do anything <laughs> to shock people necessarily. But I don't know that that was really in her nature. I think that she really cared about her craft as a writer. I think it was extremely hard for her to manage a career. And I don't think, you know, in the comic, again, like, you know, it's it's so tough when you only have 20 times five, right, uh, pages to get through these stories. And we only had one moment where we really got to show how difficult it was for her to have a career as a writer, have a career period in this point in time. So I don't know. I guess if, if, if I could crawl inside Mary Shelley's head, and this is after, you know, not just reading Frankenstein, of course, but I stumbled upon a fabulous memoir that I think she wrote when she was in her 40s about this time in her life when she was, you know, running around Europe with uh, Claire and Lord Byron and Percy, of course. If I could crawl into her head, I think she'd probably say like, God damn, I wish they would order some more books so you could like, you know... <laughs> get more into the nitty-gritty of what my life is really like because it was tough, man. It had to be so tough. And, um, you know, hopefully I will get the chance to dive much deeper into her story and what life was really like as well as, you know, exploring this amazing conceit that Adam Glass came up with, with, you know, what if she lived Frankenstein, so... To be completely honest with you, I did not have a relationship with Mary Shelley outside of just recognizing the name until Adam Glass brought me this project. It was really his mm. enthusiasm. And the way he pitched the project to me was like, these guys were the rock stars of their day. And looking back and doing the research, it was kind of more like punk rock stars. I mean, they walked into a room and everyone was like scandalized. You got to remember, these were teenagers. They're running around Europe as teenagers having sex and children out of wedlock. I mean, this is like, th this is bonkers to even imagine that people were doing this at the time. And uh, so it was, it was incredible to imagine that we could capture that story as well as the, you know, the, the Frankenstein myth and kind of remake it as our own, whatever we wanted to do with it. Um, and so immediately, that's when I started getting into who Mary Shelley was, researching her mother, who just floored me. I had no idea who Mary Wollstonecraft oh, yeah. was. And when I started to get into that and looking into, I mean, even Claire Claremont has a story to tell too. I mean, these were really, really interesting teenagers. <laughs> it's just so wild <laughs> to think of them. And the fact that, you know, there are people out there who do not believe that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein because, oh, how yeah. did a teenage girl write that story? And it just... Who else could? So, <laughs> right? Who else could? 
Like, are right? you serious? I mean, the that... whole thing is about creating life and like, oh man, and compassion, no, no. compassion. The whole story is about compassion. You're so right on when you say that because there has never been a more sympathetic monster ever. You look at any other monster and it's pretty clear cut. There's like, there's bad guy, good guy, there's black and white. Frankenstein exists in shades of gray and people often say, oh, it's the first horror. It was the first sci-fi horror. Um, and all of those accolades are 100% correct. But for me, what I think is so incredible about it is that there's a moral ambiguity there that did not exist in that time. And I think you're absolutely right that it would take a young, curious, awesome woman to get that and understand that and put it on the page. Yeah, I mean, it reads like that, right? I mean, I've read that book at various times in my life. And I think so many times when people say, oh, teen girl, then obviously like there's this kind of like snark to that. And it's just like, to me, I think that, you know, teen girls, they'll say stuff that just like blows your mind. I'm like 38 and like (laughs) there'll be like a 15 year old just say something off the cuff and you're just like, oh, yeah. I was really smart when I was 15, too. (laughs) Like, and of course, like Mary Shelley was a little bit older than that, right? But like, not by much. And yeah, I don't know. I do think that obviously it's just people being so ridiculous because Percy Shelley's whole vibe was so different, right? And people are always so trying to attribute the book to him. And it's just like, no, what are you talking about? No, I, and there's no way that he was, he was a poet. I mean, and there's, it, yeah, the longevity, right? Like making it to the end of that book, I think would have destroyed him. <laughs> like try to make it to the oh end of my a book. God. Like, yeah, I don't yeah, I don't think he had the attention span. I think he was also a drug addict. Yeah. Laudanum. Uh I think he was a lovely man though. I mean, speaking of this time that we're in and contextualizing it that way, he believed in free love. I think he loved Mary Shelley very deeply, but he was like, you have your little affairs on the side, I'll have mine. He was a vegetarian and he completely supported her in her efforts to start a career. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he was probably hoping that she would find a way to support him because he wasn't very good at supporting <laughs> himself or Wife his guy. other children. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he was very much a free thinker um, in his own right and deserves to be celebrated. But, you know, no one would know who he was if it wasn't for Mary Shelley. She is the one who, after his death, like collected all of the like little random scraps of paper and bar napkins that he wrote his poetry on and assembled it into a published work. And his father was like, don't do this. If you do this, I'm going to cut you off. Because at the time, she was being supported by his family, even posthumously. And the one child, oh my God, the one child that she got to raise out of the four that she had, like, talk about a heartbreaker. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she did it anyway. And because she was so bold and brave and ferocious, that's why we know who Percy Shelley is today. So not only did she make her own mark, uh, but she made one for him as well. She's pretty incredible. Absolutely. If you disagree, don't listen to our goddamn podcast. <laughs> Get out the Just room. Kidding. Yeah, you are not welcome here. Uh, <laughs> in this house, we stand Mary Shelley. Wouldn't that be mm-hmm. funny? I'm like, I'm going to throw down with you about someone who's been dead for a very long time. <laughs> Um, sometimes I feel like it though I was like you know what I could I could I think about it and I'm just like no because she is the one who assembled all of his stuff so it's like if a guy had done that if like that situation had been reversed everybody would be like the guy wrote it right so it's just like come on man 
Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad that she gets to hunt some monsters <laughs> in the comic because, yeah, she needed she needed some fun in her life, I think. Um, uh, maybe she already had a lot of fun, but like... <laughs> <laughs> not enough, though. Not enough. I not enough. Think. Not the monster hunting kind. But uh, also, I loved Victoria, right? Like, that was super fun. You can tell just the second that she pops in, it's just going to be great. Yeah, that was one of those great creative moments because... Adam Glass, you can say a lot of positive things about Adam Glass and his body of work, but what people who, you know, don't know him directly know is that he is one of the most incredible collaborators ever. And you sit in a room with this guy and it's like, it's like magic. There's no wrong answer. Like he can take anything that you say and spin it into something brilliant. Um, He also says like, nah, like let's move on from that, which is, you know, totally acceptable. But most of the time, like, you know, and to work with someone who has that much experience in the industry, and I'm coming in as this, like, you know, froshy, to have someone be so collaborative and welcoming of my ideas was massive. And that was one of those moments where I was like, all right, I'm working with the right person. Is when I came to him and I was like, um, can we make Victor Victoria? And he was like, oh my God, please. It was really a great moment. And then it opened up so many doors because... It was really important to both Adam and myself that we get to talk about women's issues through Mary Shelley Monster Hunter. I mean, we're talking about, you know, continuing the series, but in kind of uh, an anthology type way um, is what we've been discussing lately. And as long as this series continues in whatever way it continues, we always want to be tackling some sort of prominent social issue book to book to book. So for this one, it was really important for us to tackle feminism and women's issues. And, you know, it's one thing to be mentioning Mary's dead mother and her own aspirations. It's another thing um, to have a character who has a kind of ambiguous sexual identity, um, who is very comfortable um, in a man's identity and in a man's world, and then was then robbed of that. She's also gay and has um, a gay lover in the comic, uh, which was something that I was so happy that we were able to do, and I wish we could have explored it more. But again, like, page count, damn it. Right, right. <laughs> it was only five issues. <laughs> I know, I know. But again, like that's something that, you know, if we got to continue on this particular storyline, it's something I would really, really want to explore. Because again, in this time, it wasn't just that it wasn't spoken about. There was a world there. Like like gay people had a community and it was very different than it looks now. And it was, I think it was very mysterious, but we don't get to explore it that much. And so I would love to be able to, to dive into that um, somewhere in the future, maybe in a completely different story altogether. But history is fantastic and it's great to get to play with it. But Victoria, the advent of Victoria and what she added to that story, I think it was totally priceless. And she really allowed us to drive so many of these issues home. It's the whole reason why she's creating the monster. And it's a controversial viewpoint, right? It's controversial that she's a woman who is saying, I can't achieve my dreams on my own. I need a male escort in this world, uh, basically like a societal beard to usher me through and to help me achieve the things that I want to achieve in my life. And I think it's a hard thing for women to stomach now because we just we don't live in that time. But in that point in time in history, it was a very valid viewpoint. And I love that as an excuse to create this, you know, enormous male monster or creature, I should say. Um, it's just probably as 
Adam the creature would say it's more more PC term. I don't think he likes to be referred to as a monster. <laughs> Um, but so yeah, that was, it was really fun to play with that and inject that into this, you know, pre-existing story that we're all familiar with. It wasn't just scientific curiosity. It was something so much more than that, that had so many more societal implications. And that was just, it was really fun. It was really fun to play with. So fun to read. Thank you. So you mentioned briefly, and and I think, let's come back to it, uh, that your main gig is that you're a TV writer. And so you're on the show Queen of the South right now. That's correct, right? Well, the final season is airing now. Right, because your episode aired like just a couple weeks ago or even just a week ago. It was last week. Yeah, my episode aired last week. Oh my gosh, I'm so impressed. Called La Situacion. I think it's very cool. I mean, that means that, like, this is a really big month for you. You've got La Situacion, which came out April 28th. That's an episode of Queen of the South. And then on May 12th, the first issue of Silver City came out. So you're just, you've got so much going on right now. How are you feeling? Like, it's all coming to, like, people are seeing your name and they're seeing the things you made. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it's it's funny that you say that because I, it's amazing. And it's amazing to see your name in print on the internet and to have people reaching out to you through social media. It's an incredible, incredible feeling. But then the um, oh, the horrible, like, little self-deprecating monster inside is like, how are you going to follow this up? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> how are you going to keep this going? Oh, too relatable, too relatable. I know. But, you know, that's it's just the world that we live in. It's so interesting when, you know, you look at the career of an artist from the outside. And I was even like listening to um, some of your podcasts and other guests that you've had on before. And I'm thinking like, oh, you had this this fantastic guest who just had this like Catherine Keener voice. And she was like so cool, calm and collected. And I was like, wow, I wonder if she feels like she's spinning like 50,000 plates while like making pancakes and like juggling kids like I do. Like, I, it's just, it's so Probably. hard to imagine. You know, I think that we, we become really good um, at focusing on like one thing at a time, maybe, or just like putting ourselves out there as like maybe someone who kind of has their shit together. But I just like, I feel like I'm I'm trying to move mountains, like, like several different mountains every day. So I guess, you know, while all of this is happening and I'm loving it, I'm I'm just so hoping that I can move an even bigger mountain uh to just, you know, keep keep besting myself and and keep the ball rolling and keep creating content that engages and inspires people um in, in any way, shape, or form, because that's really that that's what this is all about you know when I sometimes when I tell my origin story I tell people about when I was in third grade (laughs) and I told my teacher that I wanted to tell everyone a story and he was like okay so like he sat everyone down on a little rug and like I was like turn off the lights (laughs) he should not have trusted me he's like okay like turns off the lights and I told everyone this horror story that I had come up with called the intrepid (laughs) about (laughs) 
there's an there's an intrepid uh, aircraft carrier museum in New York City. It's like this massive aircraft carrier that's been docked on like 43rd Street for, you know, decades, right? And it's like the, the spookiest place in the world. Or it used to be. I think they redid it. But when I was a kid, I used to go there. They had the old like underwater suits, you know, that like I, I, I remember looking in it like expecting to see a skeleton. Like how could anything survive in this thing and not just like sink to the bottom of the ocean never to be seen again? Um, and so I was so spooked by this place that I came up with this horror story about a couple of kids <laughs> that, you know, get trapped in there overnight and like see all these like disgusting, horrible ghosts. And so I tell this story, and I think I was making it up as I went along, to this whole group of third graders, which was like, definitely strike one against me. Um, But it was the first time that I got to sit in a room with a a bunch of captive listeners. I think some might have been crying. I'm not sure. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, and it was just, it was like that moment where it all clicked. You know, it's and I always think back on that, how much I loved being able to enthrall people in that way, even if I was, you know, really scaring them in ways that were probably inappropriate <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I, love, I love that story. I would have been devastated had you not shared that with us. And oh, I'm so else. glad. Well, the follow up to that is that like my third grade teacher let that go. But then I guess I came to school shortly after and he caught me like telling the entire plot of Cape Fear to a couple of classmates. And then he was like, no, I don't think so. He called my mom and I think he like really went off on her and my mother like never forgave him for it. Um, But yeah, I was I was a bit of a horror fanatic as a child. Um, Yeah. Talk about morbid fixation. I remember someone saying to me, like, why do you talk about death all the time? And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) So, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's appropriate that uh, Silver City has come out of me now. And I love it that (laughs) now I can talk about death and no one's giving me a hard time about it. Um, (laughs) It's it's really lovely. And in fact, people wonderful people like you are actually enjoying it. So kudos for comic book culture. Thank goodness it exists because I think it's such a unique, fabulous medium. And I also wanted to tell you guys how grateful I am that you do this. Um, I've listened, I've been on a few different uh, comic book podcasts now, all really lovely experiences, but listening to yours, it's a really unique viewpoint. And I think the reason why it took me as long as it did to come around to comics is that I didn't think they were for me. When I was a kid, all I had was, you know, the Archie comics. That was the only thing that spoke to me. But, you know, and then there was like the offshoot, the Betty and Veronica, which I love, but there's only so long you can, you know, really be pulled in to, you know, a story about like two kind of feuding girls or like, are they friends or, you know, it's are like, they lovers? Like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, dude. I, I was ta- <laughs> my, my friend, uh, Kate, who I was talking about earlier that I met at the Austin Film Festival pitching a show right now. The other day I said to her, I was like, I just want to get to the point where we're famous enough where we can just like walk in and pitch our own Betty and Veronica series. And people are like, yes. And <laughs> she was like, like her eyes just glazed over. And she was like, oh my God, we have to do that. Um, because yeah, Okay, you have to. I'm also on that page. <laughs> like, where is my Betty and Veronica show you're making? Let's get this going. <laughs> oh, wait, it'd be so fun. But like, I was thinking like you could make it um, like kind of like a dark throwback. Like, remember Heather's? 
What would it look like if like Betty and Veronica met Heathers? And it, I don't know. It was just <laughs> like I, I I've like fantasized about all of this. Like, I mean, Riverdale is dark, but could you do dark in a bit of a more like kind of fun, tongue-in-cheek kind of way? And then have this like rivalry turn into something more, right? Because that's what we all want to see. Like, what's <laughs> make what's out? Make out. <laughs> We're like the demographic for this pitch. We're too like, soon. yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's yeah, make it happen. Yeah. Yes. Oh, no, it would have to be. It would have to be a slow burn. And it would have to be like on again, off again. I mean, it would have to be like the most epic high school romance of the century. That's like sometimes a romance and sometimes they're trying to blow each other the fuck up. Yeah, I got like a little bit of Jennifer's body from it, you know? I'm like, ooh, okay. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's, I mean, there's so many fun places you could go with, like, reinventing these characters. But it's kind of perfect because, like, you know, I'm the sultry brunette and Kate is, like, the adorable blonde. And we're just like, this pitch would be amazing. Like, we have to, we, we have to make <laughs> oh, this yeah. happen. Let us know when it is and we'll uh, have you back. You'll be my first call. I'll actually, like, you'll be in the pitch. I'll say, listen, and I'm going to put them on right now. <laughs> Executives will be like, oh, this really isn't, oh, oh okay, all right, well. This is not normally how we do this. <laughs> We're like, but listen, but listen. <laughs> Sarah, do you have any other questions? <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like I just have laughed. I have cried. Um, <laughs> this oh. has been quite an amazing interview. I guess I don't have any more questions except for what is next because, yeah, we just talked about all of this great stuff that you have done, but what's on the horizon? What's on the horizon that I can talk about? Um, well, I think I can talk about the fact that I am in the process of cooking something up with Oni Press. Ooh, yeah, that I'm totally stoked about. Um, I haven't worked with them before, uh, but I've been working with one of their senior editors for the past few months, putting this fabulous pitch together and uh, working on finding artists. And it's just been an absolutely incredible experience already. And I'm so excited. And that will be a little bit more in the YA space. And it's a group of girls Wow, what 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 can I say? Um, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't want to throw it all out there, but it's a group of girls, and it takes place in this like super bizarro town of Seligman, Arizona. And if you've ever been there, it's like on Route sixty six. It's one of those towns that like like you drive through and you're like, oh, this is abandoned. Oh wait, there's a person there. <laughs> like what is happening? <laughs> Where they have like the the dirty mannequins in the store windows to like make the town look more populated. It's like it's like the apocalypse happened, but like nobody told you. And then all of a sudden you're driving through it. But it is like a legitimate town. And uh, there is a school and people live there. Um, and these girls live there. And they 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 come upon a very, very interesting mission while they are there. So that's a super fun story to tell. And there's going to be a lot of uh, chick romantic tension, which I'm really, really excited to write. I can't wait. And much like, you know, we were talking about earlier, this is one of those stories where, like, the, the focus is not on their sexuality. They just, they are who they are, living their lives with this larger overarching mission, which is very, very exciting to me to dive into. So that is something that is coming up for me. Like I said, I'm, you know, pitching shows. That's something I'm kind of always doing on a continual basis, hopefully, um, Something will happen soon and you'll see my name in the trades. There's like so many things I can't talk about. 
<laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but, uh, and another uh, new venture uh, with Aftershock that I am oh, very, neat. very, very much looking forward to. And hopefully it won't be the last. Um, I really enjoy working with them. They're a very open and experimental company. And I think they do really, really interesting stuff with their independent brand. And they're exciting to me. So there is stuff on the horizon, but unfortunately it's all in that like weird nebulous area where my reps know more about what's going on with the negotiations than I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I really hate, by the way. It's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's the it seems fucking like you'd be worst. Fine with that. <laughs> oh my God. I'm such a control freak, man. So, like, I know nothing. And then I'm, like, sitting with my kids, and I'm like, everybody sit down. <laughs> like, I need to have control over something. Um, so, so okay, yeah. I think that all creatives do that in some way. Like, my study is so meticulous. And if my partner, like, sets a drink down in the wrong place, I'm like, ah, ah, that is not where that goes. <laughs> you left a ring. A ring. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I hear okay. that. Well, Olivia, wow. I mean, like Sarah said, I've laughed, I've cried, it moved me. Like, this has been just a delightful, delightful conversation. Um, For our listeners, where can they find you on social media if you want them to? (laughs) I do. Please, please, please come find me. I am at Olivia C. Briggs on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my Facebook isn't all that exciting. So, but uh, Twitter and Instagram, I, I try and um, update as much as possible and let people know what's going on. Um, and you'll also get to see a lot of pictures of my kids and pets. So, so there's that. Amazing. And if you haven't yet, make sure you get on ordering Silver City because you're not going to want to miss this amazing comic about a sort of purgatory, a sort of afterlife, a sort of new life. It is really (laughs) delightful. Thank you so much, you guys. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here with us. And listeners, thanks for joining us. Make sure you go check out Olivia's amazing comic. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. We'll also link to Olivia's social media and an amazing interview that Olivia did with Wawak. We will share that as well. So get out there, go check it out. And again, Olivia, thank you so, so much. Have a good one. You too. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B.T.C.H.E.S.O.N.C.O.M.I.C.S. at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. 
We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.